You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Sunny Side Up. This is another show with altogether new topic, and this one is definitely a different one. I'm your host, Ajit, and today I'm delighted to welcome to Janani Shriram. And uh, we are going to talk about very off-bit, as I mentioned at the very start, which is effective artificial intelligence for practitioners. And most important, how do you really get value out of it? So I am super excited where Janani will share her viewpoints on it. But before going there, here's a quick intro about her. So Janani is... A data scientist by profession, of course, by now you know that she's got a very vast experience of 14 years building AI products and working with similar kind of industries, basically. She's currently working with Bain Consulting and building some advanced analytics products with them. So it's going to be a super interesting discussion, and I believe there's a lot of learning for me to hear. So before wasting time, I'm super excited. Let's welcome Janani to the show. Hey, Janani, how are you doing? Hey, Ajit. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. It's always been a pleasure. And I know since the time we started talking about this, uh, this topic has really, really excited to me because we ourselves are also an artificial intelligence company with the perspective that you gave me and the way you talked about things. So I think definitely this is something which we should share with our audience. And that's where we are today. So, you know, post our discussion, I tried to do a lot of research to make sure I gear up about my conversations with you. So, you know, uh, just being a marketer, you know, so uh, the result of this year's McKinsey's report, you know, there's a global survey which they did. I correct. I'm sure I'm sure it's 2021 or 2020 uh, on artificial intelligence, which suggested that, you know, organizations using artificial intelligence as a tool for generating value. So increasingly, that value is coming in the form of revenues. And I found this very, very profound and very, very strong statement. So I'm going to stay to deep dive into this with you and understand first, let's start with your journey so far and your passion for artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all those big words that you always keep talking with. <laughs> yeah, let's get started. Yes, uh, yeah, big words or alphabet soup, right? <laughs> um, so uh, my uh, journey in this field started before it was called uh, data science. So I began uh, with uh, with machine learning and artificial intelligence when I was in my uh, yeah, in my grad school for computer science. So uh, right before that, I was uh, learning to do theoretical computer science at the Institute of Mathematical Sciences in Chennai, uh, and that was sort of uh, initially what I wanted to do. Uh, which is study, study more about theory. But I think uh, somewhere during my master's, I became a lot more interested in, in this sort of the, the world between the two, the theory and uh, applications, 
which was a lot more mathematics, a lot more algorithms. And at the same time, it was very uh, real world application oriented. Uh, and uh, and so I started uh, with this field called now called artificial intelligence. Um, at that point of time, we were uh, learning a variety of different uh, techniques that we use for machine learning. So that's how I got started. And at that point of time, Dartmouth had um, uh, several specializations. Mine was in the area of probabilistic reasoning. And I went on to graduate with my thesis in the area. I was working with healthcare data. And then I joined uh, Microsoft. Uh, and at that point of time, the erstwhile Windows Phone group, that was that was where I worked. Uh, that's okay. where I started my journey. Okay. Um, Windows Phone was just starting out. And I, I, I thought the idea of working with um, mobile devices and specifically sensor data from mobile devices was very exciting to me. That's what I was doing initially. And, uh, uh, you know, from there on, I worked in a bunch of different places, Groupon. I worked on deal targeting and uh, personalized deal recommendations, uh, specific applications around that. And then uh, worked with a couple of startups. I was previously with LinkedIn just before Bain, where I was working with the job recommendations team, heading uh, efforts around initiatives to improve the relevance of our job recommendations uh, for different kinds of job seekers, for instance, uh, blue collar workers, right? Uh, like how, how do we make it more relevant for them? Um, and while I was with LinkedIn, uh, this opportunity with uh, Bain came along and I was very excited to sort of broaden my horizons, so to speak. So currently um, I'm a director of uh, advanced analytics at Bain and, you know, that's my uh, journey. I think there are... Typically, this this is sort of, you'll see that data scientists come from different streams, at least the, the very experienced ones. Uh, they right. either start off as a software engineer and, and okay. become a data scientist. So th that's me. Um, uh, or, uh, you know, you see a lot of um, very interesting statistical, quantitative disciplines branching into data science. Um, so the, what we call the former quants who become data scientists. And uh, you also see a lot of, um, you know, uh, people with a significant research experience in, say, life sciences, where you use a lot of statistical techniques. So they may, they have deep domain expertise in a different area, but all of the statistical uh, techniques that they learned are very, very relevant to what we now know as data science today. Uh, so these are the broad categories. I, I belong to the software engineer turned <laughs> right. uh, data scientist category, as you can see. No, I think this is super exciting and fantastic journey. And I think your love for numbers, I could definitely see that, uh, which made you out of this, which I always been running out of it. Well, uh, see, we as a marketeer or sales guys, we keep very casually talking about, hey, we are AI-based company, we have this ML in our product and stuff, but I really want to understand you being the expert of this. As per you, how would you define the stubs and how closely are they related? I think it might sound very uh, easy to go question, but there's a deep meaning and I'm sure you would like to share that with our audience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking that. So uh, feel free to, you know, uh, interject at any point of time. Um, I'll just take this a little, uh, a step uh, back. For instance, uh, let me just state a goal here that, that we want to use data. Um, so we want either big data or small data, and we're going to perform computations. And these computations will turn into insights, decisions, or actions. So let's assume that this is our stated goal. Now, anytime we are in, um, in uh, the land of AI, What's happening is that the perception of the data or acting upon the data, some part of it is automated. So if it acts or perceives automatically, we are in AI. Uh, and um, the way I see it, um, analytics sort of 
combines this uh, idea of descriptive, predictive, or prescriptive statistics and quantitative techniques, uh, which supports decision makers. And um, one might even ask, you know, what is analytics? What is advanced analytics? Um, and so in my opinion, and, and this is just uh, purely subjective, okay. uh, in my opinion, whenever you're looking at tooling to support all any kind of analytics, or whenever you're looking at predictive or prescriptive statistics and doing this in an ongoing manner, you're in advanced analytics territory. And you'll see that this is um, the, the uh, broad spectrum of problems that we also deal with in the advanced analytics groups in group and pain, of which I'm a part. So uh, then, you know, just, just just to throw a few more alphabets into the mix, there's also data science, right? Data science, uh, uh, DSS, the study of tools and techniques that enable uh, advanced analytics. Uh, again, that, that's my subjective definitions. Uh, so this is this is basically what we're looking at is, as you can see, right, lots of overlap. A is enabled by True. DS, enabled True. by AI, lots of overlap. So my my two cents here is that we should organize our teams and practitioners to work very closely rather than you know throw over the proverbial wall and and really that that's where you get a lot of value to it and uh, i just want to dig a little bit deeper into this idea of intelligence right so what does sure. intelligence mean uh, and uh, uh, i'll just pause here in case you uh, want me to spend a little bit more time on anything else I will. I will definitely. But this is very interesting because I think it gives uh, a better understanding from a perspective. And I think I have my pitch, which I could improvise for my next time when I'm going to use this really. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, you, you, you did mention, you know, you have worked with a lot of uh, startups. You have worked with enterprises before, you know. Uh, so what are the fundamentals that need to be adopted to add value to the business? I think that's my first thing to it. And then I might have a pop-up question to it, basically. But yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I have a long-winded answer to this. Um, so there are a few things that we can initially do to set set up an AI uh, solution for success. Right Before we even get to solutioning, uh, what we need to think about is what that return on investment on, the, on AI will look like. And so having that future-forward perspective um, is very important. And to set it up for success, um, in my opinion, um, uh, what we need to do is embed the technology within business and workflow, workflow processes. Um, so this, this step is very complex. And a key thing to make this happen is to get high-level buy-in and high-level um, strategic orchestration. Uh, so I think that's super important. And um, and as Bain teams, we work uh, very closely with clients. Um, and because of the level at which we are able to orchestrate these things, um, a lot of the success is derived from the fact that you, you're working at that level. right? So this is super important. A siloed AI team without high-level buy-in will not succeed. Um, and you know th- that said, uh, the second thing I think I, I want to talk through um, is knowledge of business context basically your proximity to the problem uh-huh. and uh, so for instance if you look at our team uh, there's uh, knowledge of quantitative techniques yes um, there's there's a lot of um, uh, amazing technical expertise and depth but what really makes it shine is uh, it's coupled with deep domain expertise in areas like uh, customer insights uh, supply chain um, and that that really makes it much easier to bridge the gap to business problems. And that's where I think a lot of the uh, AI projects 
you know, go to fail, okay. so to speak. Okay. Uh, and, and I think that bridging that gap is very, very important. Uh, I like to tell people that it's, it's more important to sort of be a glue person, what I like to call a glue person. Basically, you know, if you can talk um, languages uh, between two different teams, that, that makes you very powerful. And if you can also right. be the doer and the, the glue person, that makes you extremely powerful uh, to be able to get to what you want. Uh, and and obviously, as, as practitioners, what we want to see is that the, the things we build are, are used and adopted, right? So this is very important, uh, really understanding the AI in context and thinking through the technical and this is super important, non-technical interfaces of the AI. Got it. Um, that makes it very important. And um, mm-hmm. to coming to the second part of your questions, really, uh, which is around, you know, how do you add value to big enterprises as well as small startups, right? So the way that I think about it is less of whether the company is big or small. Um, I think about it in terms of execution maturity of the team that's running it. Um, So I would broadly sort of classify it into uh, five, um, you know, in order. So you have the starters. um, These are self-explanatory, but stop me anytime. So these are starters, scalers, experimenters, disruptors, and hyperscalers. Uh So if you think of it in in this sort of um, ascension, right? what what will not work is parachuting solutions from one to another. Uh, So if you think about leaders and pioneers like Google and Microsoft and Amazon, they will report their methodology from the standpoint of a hyperscaler. Because okay. they've done the disruption, they've they've doubled down on things that work, and they've hyperscaled it. Now, taking their methodology and and, and you know plugging it into say a ten person startup will likely not work, or it may. It, it really depends on the context. True. Um, at the same time, plugging it into a retail giant with limited execution experience is also going to be fraught. Okay. So it's less about the size of the company and more about their execution experience. And therefore, it's very important to build bespoke solutions that work well within a particular business and particular team context, a people context. So that's super important. Wow, I think this is super exciting. And I think that's quite deep down. So thank you so much for answering those as a whole for me. Well, uh, I also read an, another report, which was from Accenture, which revealed that, you know, uh, artificial intelligence can increase uh, business productivity by 40 percent uh, and boost profitability by 38 percent. So from your experience, what do you think? What is really working and how? Got it. Um so let me uh, let me just you know go back to this definition of sure. uh, artificial intelligence, right? So what I've uh, seen is that a simple way to explain this uh, is you're trying to build a system that can sense the world, predict what will happen, act on it, sense again, update, rinse and repeat. So that's really that that AI engine or the model of the world, so to speak. Um, so what um, uh, what I have seen is that there, there's roughly speaking, the way that this gets sort of applied uh, is in three big buckets. You're either automating uh, processes, you're delivering insights, or you're actively engaging with the user. And this user could be someone who is in a B2C company, a customer or a user of a tool that's driven by AI. So you have this this model of the world and the model of the world could be used in various ways. And what I've seen, uh, and again, purely subjective, is that the first two, the automating of processes um, and delivering insights is adding a lot of value. Okay. Um, where we are sort of, um, 
where we need to have a little bit more caution is in the engaging with users part. That's where your system sort of goes into production. That's where your system is acting without supervision. It's using the model of its world and it's acting upon it. Uh, okay. So you you need and it's doing this in um, with uh, limited or no human intervention, and so there there can be unintended consequences of this, and that might put people off from trying AI projects. So if we are looking for adoption, really just focusing on starting with automating some of our processes and workflows and insights. It's right? starting there, getting trust in the data, building confidence, and then going on to um, actively engaging uh, or acting without intervention uh, and keeping our human experts uh, around, right? So in the first two, you're not removing the human. Right. So that, I think, uh, can add a lot of value and, and help build trust. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, as you pointed out, right, what really is most important is formulating the use cases, finding and formulating the, the problem, right? You want True. to make progress. You want to figure out what is working, what's not working. So once you build that trust, you, it's, you can quickly gain, gain traction. And, and that's what you want to do. And once you gain that trust and have traction, then um, I think it's very, very important uh, with respect to your the latter part of your question uh, as to what is working, right? What I've seen working is that yeah. once you get that initial trust that you can do something with this, uh, once you've uh, dip your feet in. You have to have a portfolio of projects. You have to have the low-hanging fruits. You have to have the moonshots, uh, and they're all important. They have various risk-reward profiles. Um, so those are, I think, have been useful to me. And and particularly as a practitioner, there are certain things you have to keep in mind from an execution standpoint. The, the number one thing is, uh, as modelers, uh, as data scientists, we tend to focus a lot on the modeling, but a lot of the critical work is. Uh, to delivering values before and after. So okay. from an execution standpoint, um, you know, the, the problem is well-defined. You have buy-in, you have the right setup, everything is great. And now it's in your, uh, in the data science team's land to make it successful, right? There, I think really engaging in the before-after picture um, can add a lot of value and and, and can also, you know, uh, further careers of uh, data scientists. And it's also important to deliver wins um, within a time frame because getting into ivory towers and coming back, it's, it's just not uh, something that, that tends to be very successful. Right. Uh, and working with uh, cross-functional teams, lean, agile, cross-functional te- teams that have very short feedback cycles, that's very important. Um, and I think finally, a uh, uh, key to the to success of this is having a platform approach. So you're not just building one AI solution, you're building labeling tools around it, you're building tooling, you're building dashboards so that people can interact with the data, you're building pipelines so that the data can refresh. Right? So right. you're really thinking about it as an entire platform rather than one box that, you know, like an, uh, like an oracle that just like, speaks some sort of truth and then you can't question it. Um, <laughs> okay. So th- that's that's, these are the things that I've seen working. Okay, that that was so good of you. And I think uh, you spoke about modeling. So that takes me to something called propensity modeling, which excites me a lot. But I'll park it for a while before I have few things to ask. Uh, 
you know, uh, there's another big elephant in the room, which we call it as digital transformation, though it's a topic in itself, we'll not go there. Uh, But at a very high level, if you just don't mind touching, is there a kind of a relationship that you see between artificial intelligence and digital transformation? Because there's a lot that has been talked about both. Yeah, I'll just be brief on this one uh, because there's yeah. so many experts better than I. Uh, <laughs> but and, and like you said, right, it's a topic in itself. Uh, yeah. But a couple of things I'll note here is is AI is a key enabler and can be a big part of the uh, digital transformation strategy itself. Okay. And I think one area where I've seen, I'll just give an example of where it's it's very crucial to connect it to, right? For instance, if you think of, uh, say, retail, retail supply chains. You in retail, there's a lot of focus uh, on collecting CRM data, and like you said, True. you know, doing things like propensity modeling and, yeah. and and really quickly adding value. This is very useful, but you can add a lot of value by doing uh, digitizing the supply chain, right? And now you have real time data, and now you can use analytical techniques and AI methods to really understand the causal factors of demand and get accurate forecasts. Um, so really combining uh, AI as part of a larger digital transformation strategy is very useful. And uh, while I was talking through all this, I, I'm sure it's familiar to you that a lot of the pitfalls of um, uh, AI, right, going yes. down the AI path is very, very similar to what you need to do to make digital transformation projects successful, right? Like really having that that, that <laughs> use case, that, that business-focused use case, having that high-level buy-in, having agile teams, all this should probably be familiar as a success factor. So, um, uh, you know, uh, they, they're both very, very... Um, uh, similar in terms of what it takes to have broad adoption and ROI. Okay, okay. Uh, while you mentioned about supply chain and, uh, you know, the stuff about the modeling, I think uh, today post-COVID or between COVID, I would say the biggest factor that was playing was this uh, bullwhip effect. There's a mm-hmm. sudden surge. I think such modeling, I'm not so sure, but such modeling could be an extent helpful in predicting it into a right way always there cannot be a mechanism to predict everything but yeah uh, to an extent that bullwhip effect can be minimalized to an extent uh, which will not just panic the situation right now what we see you know suddenly there's search and then suddenly people just stop buying it because now say okay i don't need it anymore i need something else now anymore so uh, i think there's a lot for the startups which are coming up which are very food aggregators or somebody i think that's a lot for them to take away from this okay Absolutely. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, i'd uh, encourage uh, your readers to uh, your listeners to you know check out bain's um, fantastic material on how we helped uh, a lot of clients think through how to adjust focus in terms of uh, covid right you have a black swan event and, and you know you have to respond quickly uh, so lots of great material available uh, i i know through bain's work with clients Fantastic. And I think this is helpful because you're sharing something which is very insightful, which always helps to, you know, our listeners out there. So, yeah, we might just share a link or we can, while we do a post on this, why don't you also drop a link which could help the listeners to be there. Okay, let's get on to something. The next then is, um, I think, a how is this artificial intelligence helping people like me, which are marketeers, basically, or the salespeople? Or do you have any any use case in your mind that you'd like to share or in general, what's the context that you could like to talk about? Absolutely. Um, 
I'll start with uh, sales, I think, because uh, you okay. know my experience is thinner there, so my answer will be shorter. <laughs> uh, so okay. I've seen a few use cases bandied about. One is lead scoring and prioritization, right? You have these sort of uh, subjective ways in which uh, leads get prioritized, yeah. um, and uh, you know you you can formalize this. Um, and I know that Einstein, Salesforce Einstein, for instance, provides. Uh, some of this automation. So the True. key there is collecting data and um, yep. working through it. And you can also use predictive analytics to do things like forecasting deal outcomes, um, uh, finding the right deal price, um, targeting the right customers, things like that, right? So th- that that's your second bucket of use cases. And um, the, now the, the challenge that I've seen and, and, and you know, th- this, is, this is purely from my limited perspective is that the, given the volumes in B2B scenarios, it's, it's just, difficult to have um, high quality, sufficiently high quality and sufficient data uh, to learn from. Okay. Uh, but, you know, you have to start somewhere. Right? So, so with the right investment, you can make the decision process much more data-driven. But I found that, uh, you know, the, because of the volumes in uh, B2C being much more, it's just a lot more successful there. Now, switching gears a little bit to marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh I find marketing to be further ahead, at least in my experience, is there's a lot of adoption uh, of data-driven approaches. Uh, so like you rightly pointed out, right? you have customer segmentation, you have uh, churn prediction, you have lifetime value, you have propensity modeling, you have um, a whole host of the idea of modeling uh, and delivering um, uh, you know, predictive analytics is not uh, something that marketing is averse to. It's been around. Right. So my my two cents is that we will see a hardening in commoditization of these approaches uh, okay. and lots of adoption and then lots of more and improved modeling techniques and a lot of innovation around this space. But the use cases, I think um, it's been uh, it, it, it's been quite widely used and well adopted and well understood. Right? For instance, uh, my team worked on um, understanding lifetime value in, in different domains and using machine learning to inform lifetime value. Uh, because what happens is that sometimes the past does not accurately reflect the present, um, uh, reflect the future, unless you you take causality into um, uh, into the picture. Yeah. Right? So, so the other thing is also that one thing we've noticed is just switching gears from uh, customer insights. Right. You can also have use cases around uh, inventory optimization. Um, and these are very powerful uh, use cases as well. So consumer retailers can start from their optimizer inventory using past data, go all the way through to optimizing uh, prices uh, and promos and forecasting future demand. And that helps in planning. Right. So uh, these are all use cases that are that very actively being worked upon. And there is definitely appetite for that. Uh, so, for instance, uh, I know of a Bain team that did work with a client and reduced wastage by 40 percent um, by just reducing the uh, forecast error using uh, ML. And the client was dealing in um, perishable goods. So, you know, you can see how powerful that can be. right? Um, yeah, exactly. And- uh, another area I think uh, marketers might be excited about, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is uh, the idea of hyper-personalized offers and promotions, right? Uh, right. Lots of great uh, traction in this area as well. Uh, personally, I think um, accurate forecasting can uh, is, is one of the most exciting use cases. We, it leads us to understanding the cost of drivers of demand better, uh, and uh, you can directly impact revenue, reduce costs, uh, 
do better informed pricing strategy. So that's the one that um, that I'm very excited about. No, I think uh, you just nailed it, actually. And then you just got me one more question in my mind, because the moment you speak about data, I think these are the I think that's the baseline, right? Data and AI go hand in hand. And uh, I know you did speak, but I want you to little go deep down and speak about maybe quick three challenges that you have seen so far or you could identify. Absolutely. Um, I'll actually speak about one big challenge. Sure. <laughs> uh, so what I've noticed is that um, we, we had the big data movement, right? And our cloud storage became very cheap. So we started from no data to not enough data to not enough useful data because now we have a lot of data and what we uh, have what we're grappling with in a lot of places is just getting value out of that data. We've done like uh, uh, in many places, there's there's a kitchen sink repository or there's very fragmented data sources. Uh, they don't talk to each other. They don't reconcile. Uh, so I think the key enabler is actionable, high quality data. Uh, so that I think is the major challenge, um, as I'm sure okay. you know. Yeah. Um, so really where we need to start with is having a unified data warehouse. Um, and and uh, I understand the challenges with that. That's easier said than done. Um, and, you know, every team has its sort of proprietary workflows, proprietary data stores that work best for them. And it just doesn't make sense to just, you know, synchronously everyone just stopping everything they're doing and putting their data into a data warehouse, right? You, you have to do this uh, in, in a way that you're sort of fixing in flight. Uh, we can't all stop uh, to get our data into a data warehouse. So where um, I think some of the challenges lie is really enabling all of these proprietary tools to live alongside the data warehouse. Uh, that becomes very key. Uh, so what we need to do is build these sort of extract transform load pipelines to pipeline the data to the data warehouse. Okay. Now you have these proprietary tools, they're living together with the warehouse, you have a single source of truth, uh, but at the same time you have all these um, subsets of data as well so you know you can imagine there's the whole right. host of challenges around around that right so what we need to do is just take a leaf from the uh, uh, you know uh, from the playbooks of uh, site reliability and come up with data reliability what's known as slas uh, service level agreements and right? so you okay. have to have these uh, for instance, uh, a website's sla could be i'll be available 99.99% of the time Right, the uptime is so much. Similarly, there has have to be uh, data SLS. What that means is how fresh can I guarantee the data will be in the data warehouse? Because now we have this one data store that has data, and then another pipeline taking it and putting it in the warehouse. Right? So then you have all these uh, like these two different views. Uh, there is one uh, piece of data. It doesn't exact. Everything does not have to be real time. Right? Okay. So you update in one, you don't necessarily have to update everywhere else. Okay. If I'm generating a report only once a day, I don't need to know what, what the value was um, at exactly this particular period, point of time. Right? So you, different needs, the warehouse can just publish its SLAs and you know everyone just sort of gets together and says we are comfortable with these SLAs. And so this way you're guaranteed to have, a, not the, if not the perfect solution, a solution that works for everyone. And that becomes very important. And so the solution is really, I mean, it's a, it's one big challenge. Okay. Um, and uh, the solution is to uh, have a very flexible data architecture so that everyone can work with it rather than 
forcing people to uh, to use uh, a very opinionated tool. Um, so I think really uh, solving the problem is to separate concerns. And uh, I would say decoupling the collection, distribution, and consumption of data can unlock a lot of value. And, and there's no one-size-fits-all solution. So, you know, once you've decoupled everything, then, you know, you have these uh, different parts that work well together without, you know, opinionated tooling. Fantastic. This is super fantastic. So I think uh, I would like to know is then what is the next set of artificial intelligence technologies that we should be looking forward? I'm sure you would have a lot to talk about this one. Yeah, yeah. This is a very exciting question for me. So I'm going to bore you with a lot of modification. <laughs> uh, no. Because yes. I, I remember in our conversations, you, you did speak a lot about it. So I thought this should be the part of our today's discussion. I, how Absolutely, could I miss this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have so much to say about this. Just big disclaimer is that uh, more than what I think is the future, a lot of this is what I hope. Uh, is the future. Okay. Uh, less prediction, more wish list. Um, so I think uh, primarily I'll, I'll just start with the, the ones that are more top of mind to me. Right. So we keep anthropomorphizing AI. Right. We keep ascribing these, these, this personhood to it. And in my opinion, I think the big difference is that we're going to see AI that's more of a helper, uh, more of a like a companion uh, animal more than, a, you know, like a like a robot with, with a personhood so what that means is that it's not going to replace doctors it's it's more okay. about serving as a, a clinician's assistant okay right? and uh, coming up and, and looking through patterns and uh, helping them come up with better diagnoses and i think that's what is very powerful it's it's a, it's a, it's a helper and and we're thinking of it as something that's going to take our jobs um and i don't i, I don't sort of uh, share that view i'm a little bit more optimistic about that and, uh, you know, on, on that note, I think there are a couple of ways in which I address this, this future of AI. Right? That there's, a, um, there's the immediate need, which is what are the tools, what is the platform that is needed to enable this innovation? I'll talk about that first. Um, one of my biggest gripes is, uh, is that the ecosystem is super fragmented. There's, there's lots of point solutions and i i really okay. hope that uh, somewhere along the line that, that there'll be a lot of consolidation by key players okay. uh, so there's there's if you look at any uh, any of these sort of big data landscape or uh, ai machine learning landscape right it's just a large number of tools for individual point solutions. Um, so I do hope that uh, it becomes harder for teams to sort of standardize their workflows because everyone has their favorite solution and it just becomes really complicated. Yeah. So, yeah, first in my wish list is that, you know, I hope it gets consolidated <laughs> soon. Okay. Um, and another thing I think we'll see is a lot of commoditization. Uh, so you see a lot of AI as a service, uh, which makes like really cutting edge tech, very accessible. Uh, okay. You see a lot of uh, uh, cognitive services, APIs, um, mm -hmm. and things like that, which is great, I think. Uh, and uh, and I, I think I'd, I'd quote the director of AI at Tesla, who said that, you know, we, we would see sort of a new programming paradigm, which is, uh, which he called software 2.0. And um, I think that makes total sense. Basically, you know, mm -hmm. with, previously we had this sort of step-by-step -step logic that we would program into a computer. Now okay. we'll start looking at teaching it through examples. 
right? I, I hope that we have this sort of symbolic learning by uh, examples, building blocks uh, that come together to make more complex logic. I, I do hope that that's the case. Um, so I, I think that sort of commoditization will enable us to put these things together. And right. that will free up data science teams to just sort of move to the more important piece, which is not model building, but model orchestration. Okay. And we can focus a little bit more on the lifecycle problems, uh, uh, things like data governance, data lineage. Uh, how often does a model need to be refreshed? Uh, how how should how often should we act on it? What new information should it take? Right, like really just thinking through its life cycle. Um, and on that note, also. Uh, I think we need more economical models. Uh, a lot of continuous models are, uh, for instance, Absolutely. widely used. Yeah, you you probably know uh, that our current uh, state-of-the-art language models are like tens yeah. of millions of parameters, even in, even the basic question, right? And they require like three, four days to train. So without the the horsepower, the computing horsepower of the big players, and 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 you know, uh, it just becomes not very accessible. Um, and so where do we go, right? Like if we want to build something uh, of that uh, of that performance, uh, it, it just becomes inaccessible. So I hope that there'll be more economical models uh, and ways to build economical models. Right. Um, and I think uh, in a lot of ways, the stack is going to get optimized for AI. I think initial stage was about uh, really trying to prove value. And, and now I think we are well on our journey to saying, Yes, we need to take this further and, and double down on it. So in terms of hardware and software, particularly hardware, there'll be a lot of great improvements with chips that uh, specialize in processing for DNNs. And those will significantly enable us. I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that, that are happening in, in the field of uh, really hardware as well as software to make it more and more optimized. Uh, so I'm super excited about that. Now, to switch gears a little bit now this is the these are the you know, the, the platform platform uh, implications right uh, I right think it's about really doubling down on success now there's a lot to be excited but uh, you know I, i'm a big fan of increased automation because then we can delegate drudgery to systems that are optimized sure. uh, for this but there, there are a couple of concerns with this right so we need to consider the social cost and we need to con consider the environmental costs of AI. Um, and once we start having these automated decision-making systems, you have these far-reaching social impact. Uh, oh, yes. And you have unfairness, you have lack of transparency. Oh, yeah. Um, so if you have a human who's making decisions, right, uh, you would still expect the person to be able to explain their decision, to rationalize, take new information, right. uh, evolve, right? We're going to have to hold our AI systems the same level of scrutiny. So I think uh, we've come a long way. Uh, there's a lot of great frameworks that have been published for assessing how responsible uh, or ethical your AI is. I know Google and Microsoft and the European Commission have published these uh, best practices that will help us design for uh, social implications. So the social implications are around how trustworthy is your AI, right? What are the security and privacy implications? What are the fairness and bias implications? Uh, these are things that we need to think through. Um, and the this, this second thing uh, that, that uh, the, besides the social cost, there's, the, there's a huge environmental cost. 
right. so what we call uh, sustainable AI that that needs to oh, really yeah. pick up steam. Uh, the carbon footprint of AI there's been a lot of research around this, so you know sort of give a sense of the scale of the problem we're looking at. Right, uh, a recent study showed that training particular kind of deep learning language model, uh, which is being widely used right now, is equivalent to 284 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions. And to put this in perspective, this is equal to the lifetime emissions of five cars. Oh, God. That's a lot. It's not as bleak. There are ways around it, which I'll talk about. But uh, this is a very, very uh, optimized model with a step known as hyperparameter tuning. But if you remove that, and if you don't hyper-focus on accuracy, you can bring down uh, the carbon f- footprint by quite a bit. So okay. from, you know, lifetime emissions of five cars, you're looking at a much smaller emission uh, of maybe a, one trans-American flight. Uh, if you skip this step uh, called hyperparameter tuning, um, when you're not doing neural architecture search. Understood. Right? So the question is, do we need that level of accuracy? True. What are the compromises that we can make? Um, you would have heard of uh, GPT-3, which is a very powerful language model created by yes. OpenAI, right? Yeah. To put this in perspective, GPT-3, in order to train it, the, the carbon dioxide emission was the same amount that is produced by driving 120 passenger cars for a year. Oh. That That is insane. That is insane. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. insane. Yeah. And um, uh, the good news is researchers are aware that this is uh, not acceptable. This is not something that, that we can keep doing. Um, and the, the good news is that it's also that we can easily mitigate this. Um, one thing we definitely need to think about is, uh, you know, the cost of this is really the electricity we consume and Greener sources of electricity is going to significantly reduce. reduce. So we really need to think about uh, clean energy. True. And uh, the other thing is also, do we really need these uh, DNNs that pay attention to every tiny little detail? Or can we do what we call, what is known in research as parsifying the network without loss of accuracy? If, it's, if that's not a problem, then we can significantly compress the model. And we can use okay. special processors that are that are optimized for ML workloads. I know there's um, uh, something called the tensor processing unit, the, the TPU, right? That can significantly, all of these measures can significantly reduce the carbon footprint. But what is important here is that these should be metrics in evaluating models. Um, and, and I think really switching gears from focusing on, on accuracy and focusing on, um, you know, specific accuracy metrics, uh, we should think about, uh, evaluating the performance of models in a more holistic manner. Uh, and the interesting okay. idea is that, you know, carbon footprint should be one of them. Uh, okay. And I think uh, that's really going to be uh, the, the, that that's my hope. Uh, that yeah. have <laughs> okay. No, that's definitely a good one. And I can definitely see that. I think the passion behind it, the hope is just not a hope. I think there's a passion behind it. And I think, from a perspective, what you shared or overall, my understanding is I think uh, we have just started. We're just on the journey where we haven't really touched upon to the all aspects. Uh, as you rightly said, it's still not commoditized the way it should be. I think there's a lot that can be done. Uh, I love the example about the doctor that you gave me and there's a lab assistant. It actually relates me to somebody, very, very famous character, which is young Sheldon, 
who has been something like that <laughs> like he's always accurate but there's a human in it so you love those you know yeah, so yeah. i think i would i would just on a lighter note go on that side but yeah that, i think this is super interesting um, and i think there's a lot to take from a sustainability or from the carbon dioxide the, the carbon emissions basically that you spoke about so yes there's a lot as a humanity to do and uh, also there's a lot from an ai perspective to look forward from this particular thing yeah, so absolutely i'm quoting uh, some fantastic researchers sure. in my numbers but to interested readers they should definitely um, you know look up uh, a lot of the research work that has gone into understanding the cost then not okay. the cost of training these models no this is this is exciting one and and thank you so much you know janani for giving us this whole perspective about artificial intelligence your thoughts your understanding and then how do you really see this whole thing so uh, i really enjoyed and i'm sure everybody out there would enjoy this whole conversation uh, once again thank you so much it's been super fantastic to host you but before i let you go i have my two favorite questions to ask you and those the first one is of course have you picked up any new hobby or anything that you would like to share with our audiences listeners which could be interesting to them absolutely um i don't have a new hobby but i can share a, share the book that i'm uh, reading a uh, book recommendation sure. yeah um it's called why zebras don't get ulcers uh it's a fantastic book uh, i i love the name it. yeah it's very <laughs> intriguing i haven't quite i've understood zebras <laughs> uh more and i've also understood the physiology of stress a lot more by reading uh this book it's been absolutely eye opening the idea is that stress leaves this sort of physiological imprint on your body which can be observed in a lot of different ways and uh, you know really thinking through the long term impact of stress and, and what does stress constitute uh, that's been right. fantastic it's uh, and the author has such a such a great way uh, that that i would love to aspire to of making science and really difficult to understand science concepts very interesting and and even bordering on hilarious <laughs> it's it's uh, his way of explaining is just um, so absolutely amazing uh, i highly recommend it i i think uh, it's it says something if you take pick up a large tome of you know scientific density okay and you're able to read through it and and you don't you've lost track of time it says something about the, the author's narrative style when he's able to keep you engaged when there's so much scientific density in there uh, so <laughs> okay. it's a fantastic book highly recommend yeah and i think this was my second question is there any read that you've already answered so thank you so much uh, definitely we would be looking forward to this particular book well i think once again thank you so much for all the information that you shared also to all my listeners who are listening out there i would just say we are going through a tough time uh, in some part of the world and i know it's going to go just be patient around it keep your near and dear ones too close keep looking after each other i think that's really important so stay safe stay healthy as i always say just do that uh, yeah and janani thank you so much for being with us and i really enjoyed so thank you again yeah thank you all right this is ajit signing it off thank you so much Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate and review us and share these insights with your peers.